You're listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Welcome to the Experience Sikhi podcast. I'm Dilrad Singh. We begin the podcast by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land that has been inhabited by Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here, and we thank all of the generations of people who have taken care of this land for thousands of years. In particular, we acknowledge the unceded and ancestral lands of the Lekwungen, now known as the Esquimalt and Songhees Nations. Also, just some reminders, if you guys like the podcast, please remember to comment, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also send us questions and feedback at podcast at Once again, that's podcast at Our guest today is Baneet Singh. Baneet Singh is a playwright and filmmaker whose work is largely inspired and informed by Sikh, Punjabi, and South Asian culture and history, and who is most well-known for his stage plays The Undocumented Trial of William C. Hopkinson and A Vancouver Goldasta, as well as his documentary films Pressbreaker and The Ecstatic. Above all else, he loves storytelling. Benit Singh considers engaging with story to be a large part of his professional and personal life, as well as his spiritual journey, and really the only way in which all of these aspects of his life can intersect. So here's Benit Singh. So welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm I'm doing well. You guys traveled to Victoria <laughs> to come see me, which is nice. You know, people don't come see me out in Victoria, so this is this is great. Why do you think that is? <laughs> because it's far, man. It's far. It's a beautiful place. People people want to come to Victoria to see the sights and chill. They don't want to come here to see friends and family. So <laughs> fair enough. So then, how are you doing work in Victoria? Uh, I've been working mostly from home, um, and then whenever I pick up a contract for writing or directing, then I end up. Um, just jumping on the ferry, uh, going to the mainland for some time. Uh, mainland, which is now island speak, which I, which I've, which I've picked up on since moving here, uh, which is like the lower mainland for people who aren't in BC. Um, yeah, and then I'll go and stay with my parents in that amount of time, and then I'm usually there for the holidays and stuff. So a lot of the film work isn't in Victoria itself. No, no, most of it's uh, actually I haven't done a single piece of uh work in the arts field. Uh, in Victoria as an independent uh, contractor. Interesting. Okay, we'll get we'll get right into that. Yeah. But for our listeners, do you want to tell them something about yourself so they know who Panit Singh is? Yeah, um I'm a I'm a filmmaker and playwright. That's what I do professionally, creatively, artistically. Um outside of that, I co-host the Nameless Collective podcast about uh the history of six and South Asians in um in Canada and um besides from that uh what do I do I'm just like an everyday regular run-of-the-mill sick man <laughs> that that's debatable um <laughs> I think you're you're a lot more well known or you've become more well known in the past few years um for example even before for example the experience of talks your name was still out and about in Toronto maybe that was because of personal connections but you're not you're not just a nobody you're still <laughs> you're still a filmmaker and and w- in an industry where there aren't many names that have singer god at the end to begin with um what did your journey into sikhi look like 
Uh, how did your friends and family play a part in terms of you actually becoming an Amritari Singh? Yeah, um, my uh, my journey started, I mean, like at birth, really. Like our families have always been uh, inclined uh, CQ-wise uh, in some respect. My That being said, I wasn't born into an Amritari family at that time. Um, my mom and my masi my masi and my thai are married right so my maternal aunt and my paternal uncle older are married so like double first cousins um nice. most of most of the my life like i grew up with my cousins in the same house um which is not that uncommon and um at like at that time a lot of families that came into sikki in that 80s 90s era was very much responsive to 84 but that wasn't the case uh, in our house. Um, of course, 84 affected everyone. Every single person that was sick identifying um, was affected in some way. But it wasn't how like so many people were galvanized to like take Amrit and, yeah. and become Khalsa after that. That wasn't the case with our family. Um, really, our family got like personally collected, uh, connected um, as, and became Amritari in that early 90s time. Uh, a lot of it had to do with like the prajariks that were coming around at that time. Uh, prominently, uh, Gyani Sant Singh Maskeen uh, mm-hmm. was a big part of that. Um, uh, the great ragi of the 20th century, uh, who passed away in 2012 by Jatra Singh Ji Sindhi, uh, had a big part of that. And then there was a root uh, in Sikhi as well. Uh, my On the paternal side, on my dad's side, uh, they come from the village of Talewal in Punjab, in the Barnala district, uh, which some people might know. Um, Great Vidwan of the Panth, Gyani Pagwan Singh Ji Tapaji, comes from the same the same print, um, and was raised by Mahapurush Sant Baba Karnal Singh Ji in that print. That lineage of of Sants, our family has always been very much connected to them, uh, going back to Sant Baba Lal Singh Brakt, who was before Baba Karnal Singh Ji, uh, who really like my dad and my taya and my pua uh, grew up with like as like their local Sikh role model mm-hmm. and like. Uh, leader uh, in their life right Um, and then so they had that foundation of like uh, and my great grand my great grandfather and my grandfather um, were connected with the Mahapurush before Santa Baba Sundar Singh Canadian Um, and so that was always kind of there as a foundation Mm -hmm. um, for at least four generations back like my great grandfather's generation they were uh, Amritari Gorsiks and like you know my great grandfather's brother took part in like the Akalila and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, passed away at a, at a young age, mm-hmm. and then after that, the generation after, as they came to Canada, um, they lost the the outward connection, and then the Mariada and the Rath, that kind of connection. So mm-hmm. um, when they came to Canada in the seventies, that that piece of it wasn't as strong. The reconnection happened for the nuclear family uh, in that early nineties time. Uh, on my mom's side, uh, similarly, my mom comes from like a very educated family. Uh, my mom was the first, uh, the first woman in her bend in her village to get her master's degree uh, uh-huh. in India in Punjabi literature. Yeah. Um, so, like, where my dad, it was still a rural upbringing where mm-hmm. my dad was like rural and like also like not like super education focused. Yeah. My dad came here when he was twelve uh, to Canada. Um, and was very much like that, 
you know, 1970s immigration story of like, you come here, you work hard, you work yeah. your tail off and establish your family. My grandfather was actually the one who came here in the 70s to do that first. My dad was quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, on my mom's side, like they were educated, like my grandparents, my nanny, nana, they're both teachers. Um, Same. Oh yeah? yeah, that's cool, that's cool. Um, and it's cool, like, so you know that when, like being a teacher in India, in Punjab is like, it has a very certain connotation, right? For the sure. expectation for, sure. for the next generation becomes like, you have to be educated. Yep. There's a baseline that you have to exceed the uh, education that the generation before did, especially mm-hmm. back then. Because yep. um, there's a scarcity. Yep. And so my mom came from that kind of background. Um, my nanny uh, in her family, she was, you know, spiritually inclined. Whereas like, but in that culture of like education, there's like this perceived duality between like the educated and the religious in Punjab which I don't think exists at least in the simplest terms as we put it Mm -hmm. um but you know like people gravitate towards those things of like there's less like just the the Pindu kind of practice of Sikhi with like more educated Mm -hmm. folks um that being said my nanny was always like very much devotional um and was like uh was quite close to her her mamaji, who was Gyanni Narasinghji of the Kandikipni Jatha. Great, great Gorsik. Um, and even though my nanni later in her life ended up taking Amrit and like started keeping the Rath in that way, always read Bani and that kind of thing. So the connection was always there. And in like that 90s through to the 2000s time mm-hmm. is really when the family kind of started making that connection. And then for us as kids, we grew up in a family where like um, it wasn't ever forced on us in a in a dogmatic way Mm -hmm. so it wasn't like okay you're five now take amrit and start doing bani um for us the foundation for our family really came through gurbani and so the foundation and kirtan my my tayaji is a is a kirtani and so like all the kids learned how to do kirtan and play tabla Mm -hmm. and so our foundation was always that um so where in the early 90s my i'm the youngest in my family my older cousins they had all started learning kirtan and stuff like that um we'd we'd go to simran's every saturday morning um but like it was never that like okay you go to simran's and like you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this Mm -hmm. um where my cousins grew up in a house where you know people were eating meat like kulamas like not a big deal um I grew up in the same environment and Mm -hmm. so when the parents made the switch to like taking amrit and they they no longer ate uh meat like that um the kids weren't expected to make that same shift right Mm. they still they still made the kids what they wanted to eat yeah we used to go to simran's on saturday mornings and we used the bribe used to be we'll get mcdonald's uh egg mcmuffins with bacon on the way home right so like um there wasn't like a dogmatic like you have to do this now yeah uh we kind of like the the kids in the family kind of gravitated more towards it through like sikhi camps and Mm sangat So in the early 2000s, we were also kind of like pretty nuclear. Um, we didn't have like other Sangat that we knew, other kids our age. We didn't grow up in Surrey. Yeah. Uh, we grew up in Burnaby, hmm. which was like, doesn't seem like a big deal because we grew up 10 minutes from Surrey. But like, I didn't go to school with other good six. I didn't yeah. go like, there was like three kids that had um, a Judah like in my school, right? And like you count them. By the time you left elementary school, like that number depleted. Same thing with high school. Really? Yeah. And so... Same thing with high school, like the older you got, it was just kind of like kids who culturally kept their hair because mm-hmm. like they did their, you know, parents did. And then eventually they would cut it. There was yeah. like a strong Sikh identity in that kind of way. It's not a spiritual, cultural Sikh identity um, and Khalsa identity in that way. So 
um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll correct myself there and say a Khalsa identity, not a Sikh identity, because two different things. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in, in that way, like, in the early 2000s, we started going to Sangat, and we met other young people our age who were like, hey, their families also do Sangat, you know, once mm-hmm. a week, and they also do Kirtan, and they also go to programs, and learn a little bit more about that, and, like, seeing younger people who are, like, living adjacent lives to you, keep it up, yeah. and stuff like that, getting exposed to more of the community, um, and then holy holy that like that's that's just where we ended up landing right that's where we found mm-hmm. community um and then the big the big shift in my life uh what was identified as 2003 uh, by this time I had taken amrit and started keeping uh basic rat uh but then meeting by Charanjit Singh ji uh who's like the greatest mentor in my life my my vidya guru my first ustad um my first teacher um, and that kind of kicked it into high gear of like kind of taking ownership of what your relationship to your Sikhi look like. Um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of where it all kicked off. A lot of people don't know the name by Janjit Singh Ji, especially outside of the Gatka mm-hmm. sphere of things. So for our listeners that don't know who they were, do you want to just mention what they were like, how you first met them? Um, aside from them, what they meant to you, but just who they were as a person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So by Janjit Singh was, um, a Gatka Ustad, uh, a teacher of a Sikh martial practice um, who came to Canada in 2003, first to Toronto uh, to... That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Toronto got the visa. All right, y'all get the props for that. Um, so first to Toronto to teach at uh, the Sheed Baba Deep Singh Gatka in Toronto. I uh, spent two months there and then eventually uh, we stole place up uh, went with the opening of Gurunanak Academy by Parabinder Singh, who is the founder of Gurunanak Academy and the Gurmat Studies Foundation. Um, wanted to start Gatka classes and then worked with the Sings in Toronto to bring Paisab over here because we needed an Ostad. And then stayed with us from uh, October 2003 um, to uh, the time of their passing, which was May 2004. And um, by Dandri Singh, uh, uh, at 22 years of age, uh, when, when they passed, was like pretty much world-renowned on a on a gatka stage uh, a very strong gatka sing um and that like there's videos out there gatka mixtape volume two volume one that became like viral before the time of youtube yeah. uh when you had to download like really bad quality videos um but by subs uh gatka was like unparalleled but anyone who spent time with him also saw like his jeevan his lifestyle was incredible it was it was like they were obsessed with gaining and giving vidya right education it was all about that mm-hmm. always had a book in their hand uh always spent like an extra hour of their day where like they weren't doing seva where they weren't uh teaching class to like find something else to teach mm-hmm. right and uh people would come be like can you teach me this like okay if they had the vidya they would pass on what they had mm-hmm. um a lot of people don't know this but um so they came up through like they had started their journey with the Miripiri Gatka Kara and Jafarwa. Um, there's a documentary that you can watch on YouTube, Silk Road Productions out of Toronto. Uh, also more Toronto props. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Silk Road Productions made it, but it goes into the, a little bit of their more biography. Um, they started there and then they spent quite a few years with Baba Darshan Singh at Takisa um, and then eventually moved to Metta where they became the Ustad for Gatka and they spent a couple of years there before moving here. And I mean, in such a short life, they had acquired so much um, like knowledge, 
right? So much knowledge. Uh, I, I say all the time, like there's stuff that I'm coming across in written form documentation today mm-hmm. in the age of the internet where primary resources are like a click away in PDF mm-hmm. form. I'm coming across those now and not just in Gurmukhi. <laughs> yeah. uh, that by itself was kind of oral tradition storytelling to us mm-hmm. uh, in 2003, which blows blows your mind of yeah. like, you know, how much each second of his life was mm-hmm. was valuable and like how much he earned each second of his life and made yeah. made use of it. Uh, and a lot of people don't know, like, you know, he wasn't just teaching Gatka at the end. Um, there's guys who are going to him from here learning how to do Surah Prakash Gatha. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And um, so because he had come up through like the system, right? Yeah. And he like, he had the the tools to be a Gyan Nisang and, and he, he mm. employed them. So uh, was constantly involved in Seva and just like one of the most um, charismatic, loving people you'll ever meet in your life. Um, he could sit down in any group of people and immediately would become not like a space eater where people who come into a space and they need to make it about themselves, mm-hmm. but rather like an intuitive fit, right? An intuitive yeah. fit into any group and an intuitive fit with value, right? So it's not like it was the wallflower and wasn't someone who just hijacked a conversation, mm-hmm. but went into a space and read the vibe and matched the vibe, right? And with that, was able to attract so many people uh, to the path of Sikhi, to, and even more so, like to a love of Shastras and the martial practice and the martial aspect uh, of the Sikh faith and the Khalsa tradition, which is like, I would say, I don't want to discount uh, because there's been incredible Ustads who yeah. have come before. By Gyan Singh Uncle Ustad, who has been teaching for you know years here. Uh, Baba Hari Singh Ji, who had been teaching quite a few people here. Um, Ustad Mahavir Singh Ji, who had great Katki, uh, who has learned from some of the greatest Katkis of the 20th century. Like, they have done incredible work before that. But, like, the instantaneous impact that Jaranji Singh had into, like, affecting the psyche of of young people mm-hmm. was incredible. We read Shabds, we read Askarpan Khandu Kharg, we read, you know, Sura Sopachanya. You know, you did them in Kirtan, you went to Sangat, right? Mm-hmm. You felt a little pumped up. You knew it was New Year's, you read Deshava, right? Like yeah. you, that kind of like regular everyday sick mentality of like, I'm pumped up for a shop, now the track changed. But like, this is brand new, like electricity, yeah. right? Of like, yeah. man, this is what a warrior is. This is what a warrior does. This is how a warrior lives. Like we saw that up close. Um, and just this idea of like, there doesn't need to, Chamkorasar doesn't need to be happening tomorrow for us to be warriors right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had any inclination of that. I don't think I really understood what it means that shastras are our guru, weapons are our peer, weapons are our leaders, are the form of the divine. Like I don't, I don't think I ever understood that until I met Paisa. Because yes, there was the knowledge of like this is why X Y Z, but then mm-hmm. there was like the living embodiment of it. Yeah. Yeah. So what did your relationship with them turn into? Because I know you've mentioned a lot about this in the documentary itself. We'll let viewers or listeners watch that on their own, but. From a personal standpoint, what did that relationship look like between a student and their ustad and then Paneet Singh specifically and Pai Chanji Singh? Yeah, I mean, like, I think Pai Sub had one of those personalities where everyone's like, oh, they're my best friend, <laughs> right? Like, likes me, likes me more than everyone else just because they had that much capacity for yeah. PR. And that much capacity for love means, like, 
everyone felt like they were seen. Mm-hmm. And I think every student felt that way. It's huge. Yeah. Like, no, like, I think about it sometimes. Like, I'll be honest. Like, some drishti, we say, right? Some drishti mm-hmm. is to look upon everyone in the same light. Some drishti is such a huge gun, such a huge virtue. Yep. To be able to look at everyone as one. And there's so many practices built into the sick sick practice, sick ethos that help us train our mind for some drishti. But if I'm teaching a class, there are 100% whatever I'm teaching, like I know there are moments where I'm like, oh man, I don't want to do it because this is more challenging, but I have Mm -hmm. to teach this kid. Or this kid, uh, you know, pays a little bit less attention or is a little bit less respectful, right? And my hankar, my ego, inhibits my capacity for piyar, right? For, Mm -hmm. For selflessness, for just, you know, truthfulness. And so, but so like, I'm sure there are kids who probably feel like, oh man, I don't get the attention from my ustad that I want. And that's my own shortcoming. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone walked into that classroom and felt like, oh, mm-hmm. right. And that's, that's incredible For because sure. like to have that, the same discerning virtue of like, I need to teach this person, this thing, teach this person, this thing, teach this person, this thing. And they didn't teach everyone uniformly. And I think the Toronto guys will speak to this more because they had less time. Mm-hmm. So they, in terms of quantity, they got to learn less from Paisa. Yeah. Uh, whereas we had a longer amount of time. So quantity-wise, we got to learn more. So there was more mm-hmm. overlap. But it wasn't a uniform learning experience. They, like, I got very specific lessons that were for beneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my cousins got different lessons that were for them. Yeah. Older, older Gursiks, older Perna, they got lessons that were for them. Mm-hmm. That experiences that were for them so that's every student's experience was unique and discerning but i don't think anyone felt leaving that someone's relationship was more than my mine was yeah like everyone felt like oh my relationship with paisa was pristine right mm-hmm. it was valuable and that that's an incredible quality um for myself like i i was and this i talked when we did the documentary i talked for a long time we probably talked for like two three hours mm. and um I don't think this part of the narrative made into the documentary. I was a terrible student. That's terrible. Really? Like, not in, not in the sense that I I listened, mm-hmm. right? I was very obedient, Okay. right? But I thought when we practiced something, I practiced it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the, luckily, one of the things that I had quality-wise. But I was nalak in the sense that I would be like, man, I knew how much by Janji Singh wanted me to learn about Sikh history like properly mm-hmm. and like they would grill me and give me tests and so I'd like I'd hide I wouldn't hide like physically but like one time we were driving to Abbotsford for uh, to do an Akarda there mm-hmm. and like I made sure I jumped in a car where Paisa wasn't going to be in it so they couldn't ask me questions mm-hmm. right because like a few weeks before that they told me like keep a notebook with you yeah. and write down everything that I tell you that way you'll never forget it mm-hmm. and I never went and got that notebook so I was like yeah. I don't want her to ask me so then I jumped in a different car yeah but this is the thing. Like, the despite the fact that I was completely useless, and I am completely useless, Baisab still, I never felt uncomfortable with him, mm-hmm. right? I didn't talk back. I was a really shy kid, right? I never said, oh, I'm tired now. Like, let's stop talking about this, mm-hmm. whatever. But Baisab could gauge my capacity. Like, okay, okay, this as far as this kid's being pushed right now, mm-hmm. let's tell him some jokes. Right, so that same ride, the Abbotsford ride that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. on the way back, Baisab jumped in the same car as me, right, and then jumped in, grilled me about Sikh history a little bit, yep. revisited a couple of Zakia, uh, told me some new things, mm-hmm. and then like when I was obviously probably visibly checking out, 
told me a couple of jokes, the jokes that I still remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. Amazing. And like reeled me back in with that love. So that was like, everyone had their own unique experience. That's what mine was. And I think the day that Baisa uh, left, uh, left us May 7th, 2004. Um, I think that was, that was for me, was the seal. Like where that became the touchstone upon which I reflect my life. Mm-hmm. There's um there's a great book. It's called uh it's called Terry. It's written by Douglas Coplin. It's a biography on Terry Fox. And in the intro of that book, there's a really great passage he writes about the dead, right? Um, and he says about the dead like, the dead are, and I'm paraphrasing, but like the profound thing about death is that a person upon leaving, mm-hmm. it's very tough for them to find a new way to disappoint you. Right, because yeah. we kind of freeze that moment of of what we've gotten, and so there's no greater blessing on earth that we have as living people than to die, mm-hmm. because then there becomes a point by which we can reflect and reassess. And like that was when I read that, I read it a few years ago. Um, and I was it kind of unlocked for me, like oh, this is what I've been feeling. Yeah. Right. Like if if myself was still around beyond those seven eight months we spent together and i went into my teen years and you know maybe i became less interested in gutka maybe uh because yeah ball was life back then too right like so uh maybe i put more attention that way maybe the relationship drifted Mm -hmm. right maybe i i went through teen angst and would have gotten more annoyed but it froze at the age of 14 years old that relationship froze for me now I can revisit it at 32 and mm-hmm. be like, I can look at that relationship from the lens of my my experience now, yep. which is powerful. But those lessons have become immortalized. Mm-hmm. The relationship has become immortalized. So like, I remember like the last conversation I had with Baizab and how direct and the directives, literally directives that I got from them. It's like, I have a guiding, I have a guiding compass for the rest of my life that I feel good about, mm-hmm. that I can always fall back on. Yep. Um, and that's, that's an incredible gift, an incredible blessing to have because it's so easy to like lose track, lose focus, what you want to do. But like the fact that I have just this touchstone to be like, okay, what's going on in my life and where can I go back to? Like, that's, that's a huge blessing. And I probably take it for granted way more than I should. Out of all that time spent with Baitan, do you think, I'm sure the lessons were obviously too many to count. But is there that one big uh, key message that has stuck with you ever since or that shows up in your daily life? Absolutely. Um, the the one, and I share this one pretty liberally. They're, they're like, this is, you become guarded, right? When your mm. thoughts not around and you can't pick up the phone and ask them questions, you become a little bit more guarded about yeah. like, because you have to use your own, Babik um, Buddhi, your own discernment to yeah. decide uh, what, like, what, what, what is to be shared. Uh, but the one that I share liberally because I feel like people should know it was like the technique of learning. And Paisab said to me once, um, the way that we used to run the Akara, um, let me just cut me off if I'm rambling because uh, like, you know me, I'll I'll talk if you give me space well, to talk. Um, but we were running an Akara and Paisab was, I was practicing whatever I was working on uh, on the side. And Paisa was playing sorti with somebody in the middle of the room. 
and so during the class people were practicing a bunch of people were walking watching sorry and um and in my head i was like i'm gonna be a good student mm-hmm. i'm not gonna stop practicing right so i kept practicing my step the thing that i was working on and the thing that he was playing with was like a much more experienced kardari mm-hmm. and so whatever they played whatever 10 15 minutes whatever it was and the vice is coming around he checks like what i'm working on it's like cool gives me some pointers and then he's like were you watching um when i was fighting the other thing and i was like no i was like i was working on my step right and i was like inside i was like all right i got this mm-hmm. i figured it out everyone else was watching yep and paisa turns to me it's like if you don't watch what are you going to learn <laughs> right dekhna to bagar sikhna ki yep and then they broke down a formula they said 90% sikhna dekhna te sunna 90% of learning is watching and listening mm-hmm. so 90% of learning is observation yep baki jad baki da jada 10% ta ustad to sikhna um abhyas karna sikhona so last 10% of learning is to learn from your teacher like the actual lesson mm-hmm. and then to do abhyas to practice it and then to teach it and that's where your 100% learning comes from and that was profound Yeah. Because I actually like later on in life realized I have a hard time asking questions. Mm-hmm. I don't like in a conversation like this, I will absolutely like I I'm inquisitive. Mm-hmm. But if you're like a gyani or an ustad or a baba or a sant, you yeah. know people are like you to know, ask a question. It's intimidating. It's intimidating. Yeah. And it, like the other thing is like I just don't feel questions inside mm-hmm. that come out that yeah. arise. but 90% of learning is observation yeah um i actually had an experience of this in the in the outside of sikhi world in my professional career mm-hmm. um there's a festival called bard bard on the beach uh it's a shakespeare festival that happens every year i assistant directed there in 2019 mm-hmm. it's part of the 2019 season and an assistant director in theater is really like a apprenticing kind of role you're learning from the main director more than anything else you're giving your ideas and stuff mm-hmm. and you're helping out where it's needed but it's really for you to learn and the production had two directors it was a co-directing thing so there actually wasn't a lot of space for me to ask questions because there was so much time between the co-directors talking to each other yeah and then one of the directors was like to me after like hey you know what like i feel bad you never got a chance to ask questions during the production process mm-hmm. let's meet for coffee after you can kind of pick my brain I was like cool that's nice. So met and we were talking and I kind of just had a conversation and they were really pressing me to like ask more questions about directing. And I was like because they were like you know you never got to ask too many questions. Yeah. And I was sitting there like racking my brain and this was months after the production wrapped mm-hmm. months. I barely had questions to ask. I faked some of those questions. So just so they felt like I was wasting Don't their time. Networking. Yeah, yeah. Um and it was generous of them to offer their time. Mm-hmm. But like I couldn't explain to them like for me 90% of learning is watch is observation. Yeah. Even if nobody else even if it was just them and I had the space to ask questions, I was mm-hmm. like I don't know if I would have. Right? Cuz I observe mostly. Yeah. That's a skill that I've taught, right? Mm-hmm. And um people love the word gleaning now right like what do you glean from other people yeah uh and like i feel like that that was the skill that that baisab taught was like just just watch like a hawk mm-hmm. right and so that's my main method of learning now i like it because it kind of 
one thing that I didn't realize that it has kind of embedded within it is this tradition of like ustadi, right? Or respecting your mm-hmm. your vidya guru. And implicitly Paisab taught uh, taught us a lot about respecting your ustad mm-hmm. without asking for anything. Like never like asked for things or barely let us pay for things, right? Like you know how like ustads will let you buy them stuff all the time? Yeah. Never. So like never ustad di chilaini kadi. Right, mm-hmm. but never needed to because they commanded a certain amount of respect. Yeah. Um, they also like treated everyone like a peer, mm-hmm. which is incredible. But then implicitly taught us a, about how we're supposed to teach our future teachers. And the nice thing about the ustad, the, the kind of piece that's attached to that, the being a shigerd piece that's attached to that is like when you ask questions, you're asking from your own the the limits of your own intellect. Mm-hmm. If you start to observe you're deferring to the expert yep. to impart their wisdom. And that's like, that's huge, right? Japji mm-hmm. Sahib, uh, we read all the time, Sonia, Manya, Mankita, Pao. Right? Like, that's like the formula. Like, mm-hmm. Sonia, so Shabdanu Sonana, Manya, then accept what you read, then Mankita, Pao, and then hold it with devotion yeah. in your in your mind. Like, those are the three steps to mm-hmm. to being a Sikh. Right? To combining your Sikhi, to earning your Sikhi. And so that that's kind of embedded in that model of learning is like 90% is observation, 10% is learning the lesson, doing abhyas, right? Practicing it and then teaching it forward. That teaching it forward piece, barely anyone talked about that. Mm-hmm. Like I, when I got older, I learned about learning through teaching, right? People talk about it in like in the professional yeah. world a lot, learning through teaching. Because mm-hmm. um, you have to have a you have to have a mastery of the subject before you can teach it. Um, but Paisa put that into place. Every single person in the... I think you and I were talking when I came to Toronto. And mm-hmm. I shared this model with you guys too. Right? Was like... Day one you learned at the Akarta. The day you became a teacher was the day the next student started after you. Yep. So if that was the day after, that means you're teaching the next day. If it was a month after, you're teaching the next month. Mm-hmm. Because the next person, the first person to teach them is the last person who, who learned the lesson. Yep. Then the Ustad comes and refines it. But then you need to build a mastery of what you're doing mm-hmm. and an intentionality because you now have to explain it immediately after learning it. Yep. Um, and under the supervision of an expert, of an ustad, that's like, that's a really powerful teaching model. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. That, that was the biggest lesson that like I, I hold on to and share wherever I can. We're, we're going to get into your career too, but as someone who now teaches at the Victoria Akara, but not having your ustad to refine your teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you balance that? What does that look like when you're in the Akara with all of those students? It's a tough one, man. Like, I, I think about it a lot. Like, because mm-hmm. I would think like, oh, this is when I would pick up the phone. Yeah. And this is where you kind of... The... Faisal was always very welcoming of other people coming in and sharing their perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so like, quickly got a respect for like taking what you can from where you get it right so if there's a question that i would ask by janji singh about teaching because they're not an arm's length away Mm -hmm. uh if i can't pull it from my own memory and i can't pull it from the memory of somebody that uh also learned from paisa usually i'll ask like debut singh navdeep singh Mm -hmm. Uh, other people who kept teaching afterwards too. If we can't in our collective, 
then I think about like the the value of what you're asking, right? What's like the the root of it? Is it mm-hmm. a step? Okay, talk to a gut gay saying, talk to one that like this. Is it something that's more values based, uh, tradition based, historical, whatever it might be? Then find the find the person, the expert, the gurmukhota value alignment, mm-hmm. and then go ask them, um, and get the consultation from there. Yeah. So like so deferring to like the expert, um, and that yeah, like it hasn't come up a whole lot. But uh, it it does, and then the other one that I always I always insist on people doing is like, if you spend time talking to your guru, you're gonna get your answers from there as well, right? Um, if not directly, if you spend time doing sajbart or whatever it is, right, you're forced to speak to your guru mm-hmm. and listen to them speaking to you, and like like you're gonna get a lot of answers to your questions. So that was your journey into um, Sikhi, the role that Gathka and Paichanji Singhji played in your development. Mm-hmm. So now moving into your career, um, after high school, what did you pursue? What did those decisions look like when you were entering the undergrad world? Yeah. Um, in high school, I was really big into theater and drama. And um, so I did that for the first few years of high school. And I did it passionately. Um, it was the thing that I was doing. Uh, out in my extracurricular in high school you were in high school yeah and i was doing the extracurricular it was that in gatka like was my extracurricular life um and outside of that um or like later on in high school uh it was like oh get quote-unquote realistic about your future right because what yeah you can be a single who's an actor it's like no you're not uh that was the that was the thought back then it was like unheard of um, I remember when that movie Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou came out. It's a Wes Anderson film and Waris mm-hmm. Alualio was in it. Oh, really? And yeah, Inside Man came out when I was in high school too, 2006. Waris was in that he's too. He's a veteran then. Uh, yeah. He's been here a while. Yeah, yeah. He's been around since the mid-2000s, uh, mid to late. And so like seeing Waris Alualio was like, what? Mm-hmm. Right? But then it was like the context of Sikhi too, right? Like yep. growing up in much more of like a like a Khalsa fever environment. <laughs> um like it was a different different kind of like proximity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a visual proximity, but still like like when I researched a lot, this is like like different kind of um, upbringing and, and mm-hmm. community. So there still wasn't that like real accessibility into yeah. the space. Um, so I, from by Jaranjit Singh, like I did end up getting a, like a, a real interest towards Sikh history. I also had it from my mom from a young age too. And uh, then I was like, I want to become a socialist teacher. Also had a fantastic socials teacher, history twelve and socials ten. Uh, Alana Swatsky, shout out to Alana Swatsky. I'm sure she's listening <laughs> <laughs> to the Experience Sikhi podcast. Yeah, yeah, uh, and um, yeah, uh, who was like a huge inspiration and like totally like motivated me to like find my voice in the classroom and that kind of thing, um, and like mobilize my activism that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So that confluence kind of was like I want to become a socials teacher, and I was like maybe I can do like a minor in theater and teach drama on the side Mm -hmm. so i was like i could teach drama even though if i can't do it and so um i dropped all my drama classes at high school was like i can pick this up later in life if i want to Mm -hmm. and just went towards like total social studies realm went to graduated went to simon fraser university to study history uh and had a terrible terrible three years um full of academic struggles and personal and mental health struggles um, but also uh, found like the Nihal program with the Six Students Association mm-hmm. uh, that UBC and SFU SSAs used to do, which was a variety show for like Sikh families. And they did like 
comedy skits and like you know like short little one act dramatic productions what was the purpose for the Nahal show it was like a fundraiser okay and also just like a fun night out that was like values based yeah like for a sick community right mm. and so started doing that with like a background in theater like within like we did it for four years mm-hmm. uh i mean Nahal ran for 10 years we did four of those years Got it. um what i will argue and i'm sure the SSCs around me will argue otherwise but I will say the peak four years of Nahal were ours. Uh, <laughs> everyone's going to say that. Yeah. So I don't know how depends upon his father. That's true. Uh, so um, I was, uh, so th- those years of doing Nahal, it was like a real place to exercise like my creative agency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in those years, uh, I was doing more for Nahal than I was doing for my classes. Like I wasn't going to classes. Mm-hmm. I was, failing tests and midterms and stuff um i hated it i hated school i loved learning hated school um what what about school made you hate it just the structure in general that you have to go to class and then write a test yes yeah um like i am like i definitely am not suited for like university okay and like i'm saying this as someone now who has like co-written academic papers right which is like weird i've also like guest lectured in like university classes and mm-hmm. graduate studies classes and but like it wasn't an academic journey that took me there i'm not saying that like currently right i'm saying yeah. it because like it's weird that i do that because mm-hmm. i say this every time i'm in that space i'm like i'm a university dropout right um and yeah so like i didn't like the structure i didn't like like having to do i did well when i was writing papers didn't like studying for exams hmm. i would skip class and i'd go to the library and i'd read the whole time <laughs> i'd go to sections of the library that i enjoyed yep um often it was like black power movement of the 1960s that's cool right um because i was really into black panthers and malcolm x still am um and like the relationship with like the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and like dr king and the non-violence like i always found like a lot of resonance with that um that's that uh friction point so i used to like look into that just go to the sick history section read a whole book because that now i had access to like an academic library mm-hmm. right and like as like a as a history geek that was embedded within me like i a, it, was, it was amazing yeah mm-hmm. like right like now all of a sudden i'm reading primary sources on sick history that was the first right yeah. and uh then like we had like JSTOR and like ac- like access to like the databases. Yeah. So now I'm reading like academic papers for fun, mm-hmm. but I'm not doing my schoolwork, and it just like it like it beat me up. I hated I hated school. Mm-hmm. Um, did very very poorly. Um, went to Kwantlen University for a semester to find myself, and at that point I was um like trying to figure out what I want to do, so I took a couple of uh, classes in South Asian diasporic history, a couple of classes in film that ended up being exactly kind of what my life went to after. After that, I was like, yeah, I was like, I need to make a shift. I went to film school and did a, did a accelerated program at Vancouver film school and got my diploma in film production, specializing in directing and production design. Um, and then like just kind of on my own in like an amateur hobbyist capacity, our community capacity just kind of kept looking into like local history, mm-hmm. um, you know, of South Asians in Canada, six in Canada and exploring that more. And that kind of led to when I graduated and where my career is now. And when you were considering 
switching out of history, um, struggling with school? What were the conversations with your parents like? Um, I know like even <laughs> getting, you know, the, the, the standard is an A in a Punjabi <laughs> family and anything lower. It's like you're afraid even bringing that report card home. Yeah. Um, so again, you were in adulthood at this point in time. What were those conversations like? Because at the end of the day, they had a stake in it. Yeah. Our parents are paying for education. They want to see their kids prosper. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did that look like? Yeah. Um, my, at this point I was 22. So like if I did the four years in university, I should have had a degree in my hand mm-hmm. when I made this decision. Yeah. Um, in- instead I had completed only two academic years uh, of education. At both SFU and? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, and I had struggles. Like at one point, like I, I was like required to withdraw and I had to go through like a program to like get reinstated again. And that's mm-hmm. something I've never actually said in public, but I feel like people should know, like, just because like that you have those kinds of like academic probation and requires to yeah. withdraw and that kind of stuff doesn't make you an idiot because <laughs> exactly. that's how I felt for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably still is an insecurity why, like when I go into an academic space, even though like I have like quote unquote academic peers, mm-hmm. I feel like I need to qualify. Like I'm a dropout. Like yeah. I have to say it. Right. Um, mm. Because it's so embedded within us. Like, Oh, this is the way to be smart is to have a yeah. degree. Um, even there's some point in my thing. I was like, man, I want to make like two huge movies, get rich and then drop and then just go to school again and finish my degree. Mm-hmm. Right. Like for no it's reason. It's always in the back of your mind. It's always there. Right. Like I have yeah. no reason. What am I going to do with the history degree now that I haven't done it already? Mm, <laughs> right. Sure. If I don't plan to become a high school teacher, exactly. like I initially was. So it's a, it's, but it's important for people to know that like, that's, that's, it's a real struggle. If, if that's something that you're going through right now, you know, maybe this is something you have to persevere through because like your priorities were wrong and you weren't focusing on what you wanted, or maybe you're doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, yeah, be generous with yourself. If you have, it's a privileged thing to say, but like, if you have the resources financially and time wise, to think about what you want to do, like take like take advantage of those resources. Um, I luckily did, right? Uh, with the Guru Maharaj Dikarpana, like we were in a situation where I could mess around in university for a little while and figure mm-hmm. out what I wanted to do. Yeah. I, I very much realized not everyone's in that position. So um, I also give, I don't, I don't believe this thing of like, oh, grind and you'll get whatever you you want. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not how it works. I'm sorry. Like it's that's not. not how the world is structured. Uh, and if you think that, either you were lucky and you that worked for you, yep. or you were born in a position to be lucky. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so I don't want to understate that. Like, there's some amount of privilege that I tapped into to do what I did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that being said, like the conversations with my parents were like, "Look, like I'm, I want to do this now because istobatkiya. Like, we're gonna start thinking about like getting married." We're going to start thinking about like the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Cause like, I don't, cause their thing was like, yeah, go ahead. You want, we know that, you know, this is a talent you have and something you want to do. Finish your degree, then go to film school. Got it. And the thing is, and this is like the culture has changed, mm-hmm. but like, and like it's changed in these like last seven years, by like 24, you're talking about marriage, like for sure. Right. Like back to like even 10 years ago, yep. um, even if there was nobody there to talk about marriage about, <laughs> like it was still like, you know, it's degree and marriage. Right. Yep. Um, now I think the culture is shifting a little bit, at least in Canada. Slowly. Uh, Yeah, slowly. Um, and so the, because the conversation was like, I was like, when am I going to do it? Like, Mm -hmm. like it just seems like a delay tactic. And I was like to my parents and I cut a deal with them. I was like, I want to do this now. 
I was like, because I can do a degree anytime, actually. Mm-hmm. I can't do an accelerated program at any time in my life. I can't put 12 hours. Like, I used to go to class like nine hours Got a day it, yeah. at VFS, right? And that was class time. Mm-hmm. And then if there's like production and homework and stuff, like yeah. that was on top of that. I was like, I can't do that when I'm like 26. Mm-hmm. And you know what? In retrospect, I probably could have because like things just seemed scarier back then. Mm-hmm. And everything felt so consequential. Uh, but it it really felt like I was like, I want to do this now because I want to take the plunge. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, uh, when I got them on board and I was like, look, I was like, if it doesn't work out, I was like, I'll go back and finish my degree. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can, a degree I can actually do nal nal if yeah. I want to do it. Because I can take a few classes at a time, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when my parents were like, okay, like if it's what you really want to do, that's, that's cool. Mm-hmm. We're not going to say no. The last step was always there, like, you have, you know, now you have to ask Guru Sahib, right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's always been a big thing for me at a big juncture in my life is to take a Hukum Nama. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's a value my mom shares too. And so that was the last thing. I came down, got a Hukum Nama. It was like very, it was about Guru Maharaj being Aung Sang wherever you go. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right. And I, I came down, that. told them the Hukum, they're like, Jal. That's what you're going to do. It's still, it was still a sticking point up until 2019, I would say, is when my dad stopped bugging me about it. Uh, so that's a long period of time to be Very a professional with a job, with many jobs, mm-hmm. and be hearing from your parents that you're, or one of your parents, <laughs> that you're in the wrong job. Yeah. But eventually, uh, when it stabilized, uh, he, he understood. What kept you motivated through all of that? Because again, even till 2019, having those conversations, or in general, like those feelings of not being enough, Mm-hmm. I there's in law school I think every person I've spoke to before entering and even all the people I mentor now um the first thing I mention now is imposter syndrome mm-hmm. because it hits hard because in law school you feel like you're the dumbest of the dumb <laughs> even though you're just surrounded by smart people and you're supposed to think of yourself as smart too um so how did you keep yourself motivated through all of this maybe not pressure but there's always an option there right that oh maybe this option was the better one yeah um it's a it's a few things man when i left film school i was like oh man made, did i make a mistake because yeah. i don't know what i want to do wow and even after me, film school yeah it took me it took like i left film school in 2013 my first production went up in 2016 so it That's wasn't like gap. yeah so there's a big gap mm-hmm. um i started writing it in 2015 that mm-hmm. show uh that was on documented trial um of william c hopkins in the show about by me Singh shahidi and like I didn't know out the gate, like this is what I want to do. And so I did it like, you know, bounced around to odd jobs here and there. A mm-hmm. couple of things kept me going. Um, one was like, I know why I wanted to do this. And it was because I, I love film and theater, but I also know like, I want to tell the stories of my community. And I don't want to tell the stories of my community because I don't want to tell the stories of my community because, you know, like, uh, right or like where you know that we have to achieve something i want to tell the stories of our community because our we deserve it <laughs> right like it's a disservice to ourselves and it's a disservice to the world for our stories not to be out there mm-hmm. and not to be out there with like the with the artistic robustness the glamour, right? yeah, yeah that that goes into telling a story and so like i love film i love theater like I'm not doing this because I as because I want the medium to be subservient to Sikhi. And I'm I'm not doing this because I want Sikhi to be subservient to the medium mm. or to the story. I'm doing this because it's a confluence of all these things coming together. 
right? It's where all these things meet. I can tell stories and do the things that I love, um, be personally nourished, right? And do something for the community that I love so much, um, it, no matter how small, humble of a thing that it is. So that was, that's what the motiv- motivating factor was. Mm-hmm. And like, where else am I going to do it? Right. Yeah. Or else, like, I, there's no, there's no plan B that's gonna nourish my soul in this way. So, um, we had to talk, was, since we were kids, we talked about it. Since we were watching Braveheart, Three Hundred, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and watching these epic battle scenes, we're like, man, like, where's, where's the movie about the Khalsa? Yeah. Right. Um, where's, where are the films like about the Vardakalugara mm-hmm. and like, where's our film adaptation of Sundari? Right. Yeah. Not like animation for kids. I'm saying like. Where's our dope baller, like big budget Hollywood blockbuster, epic films, right? Epic period films, because that's what these are, and we always wanted to do it. And so, and then the other thing was by Jaranjit Singh being touchstone. His thing was always like you know bigger than karate. We want gatka shastra vidya, sick martial practice, sick martial identity culture to be bigger than karate. We want it to be Olympic level. Was the other Mm -hmm. thing Paisab used to say, Olympic level. Everyone knows what the Olympics are. We want everyone to see like this is this is what we're about, right? Mm-hmm. And in film school, I got a taste of it because I got a taste of that because the way the film school structure worked was it was competitive, meaning like not competitive like, oh, everybody wants to be better than the next person, mm-hmm. but you were afforded opportunities based on if you want them or not. So like not everyone got to make a grad film that okay. they directed right? You Got pitched. Right. There was a certain amount of funding to go around mm-hmm. and you pitched for that funding. So, so if you really wanted it. Yeah. So you had to beat out the other projects, mm-hmm. right? So like in like a cohort of like, I think 14 of us, I think nine to 11 pitched final projects, mm-hmm. three got made. Wow. And I didn't want to make one. I was kind of at this place in film school where I was like, I was like, I don't want to direct anything. I was like, I'll design something and you know, I don't kind of feel like, I was like, nothing's coming to me now writing wise. Mm-hmm. And then I had a conversation about like colonialism. So it was a lot of fun <laughs> with one of my classmates and it was illuminating in the worst of ways. Um, and I was like, man, I was like, even if this isn't a big thing, because the way I saw it was like a grad film is really just for your grade. It's not for like yeah. any kind of achievement outside artistically. Mm-hmm. And like so like why do i need to like throw all like my attention into this i was like it's just mm-hmm. about getting the grade getting the certificate and then i'll go and make my films outside yeah but then i was like man i was like i don't here's an opportunity low stakes right the only thing that matters is a grade if the film sucks who cares mm-hmm. um but to try try making these films that we've talked about and like let's just see what the response is right mm-hmm. like to see so I wrote a script. I wrote a script um, for a short film called Shackled. Um, and it was my it was my grad film at VFS. And it was just, it was, it was imagined. It was imagined as a situation between a colonel of the British Indian military, a Gora, and uh, a character I made up, an Akali, by the name of Mukat Singh. Mm-hmm. And Mukat Singh was really loosely based on the amalgamation of a few, like, uh, anti- uh, anti-British rebels mm-hmm. most prominently probably like around the character of Baba Maharaj Singh right who was kind of considered like the, like the the father of like anti-colonial activity mm-hmm. uh, and rebellion yep 
and Baba Maharaj Singh had like this mystique about them of like like Sant Guru level kind of mystique where like the British were fascinated by stories of like this holy man who would like escape thousands of people and mm-hmm. like was stirring rebellion and sedition across the empire. Yep. And I just I was like so this character Mukht Singh made him up um as like this rebel who had been like in India mm-hmm. like assassinating a bunch of British people. Yeah. I was like, man, like let's just kill a bunch of white people and see what happens. Um and so that was what he did. Mukht Singh yeah. like go around kill and they caught him. Mm-hmm. And the short film was he, him being arrested, brought to the colonel who's been chasing him mm-hmm. and their last conversation before he's sent to death, mm-hmm. right? Sentenced to death, to be yeah. hanged. And I wrote the script thinking like, whatever, this is probably a hunk of junk. And then I presented it to the class and with pictures of old Akalis, mm-hmm. right? That's like, this is what the aesthetic is yeah. for the production design. And this is the script. And... I was like to the class, I was like, I'm not that competitive because the class eventually as a collective was like, we all chose which ones we wanted to make. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the instructors. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. The instructors would have to green light the project to be like, yeah, okay. It seems like it's achievable. It's yeah. within the parameters of the program. But the class chose like the cohort, like these are the three we're going to mm-hmm. make. And so we, when I put it out to the class, there's a few projects that got the axe and they they few directors they're like we really want to make ours really want to make ours mm-hmm. my pitch to the class was i was like y'all decide i'm not going to pitch my film yeah i was like read the script y'all decide i'm cool either way mm-hmm. but the response to like just the visual imagery of old culture yeah and like the stakes and like the relevance of like this anti-colonial narrative mm-hmm. in 2013 was like is immediately gravitated towards right mm-hmm. and it was for me i was like like yeah like this is i was like i forgot how cool what i'm holding on to is mm-hmm. and yeah it's just it's bit like for that it's, it's a gift like i can kind of take my foot off the gas at any point and find a regular job and i do mm-hmm. sometimes right uh in the arts yeah. and i'll find like a day job and i can kind of put pedal to the metal and really look for stuff but the thing is that touchstone of bigger than karate and like seeing how affected people are by seeing old kalse and what we're about is like that's that's something that I I never want to stop seeing, is be people being affected by that. Uh, I just want to mention here that when we had our preliminary call, one of the first things you mentioned when I was like, "Tell me about yourself," was that you're very proud and um, grateful to be a Khalsa, and like I I've always seen that of you, but now mm-hmm. seeing it like progress through your life, I can see <laughs> it build up step by step, and it shows in in very different ways. That was part one of today's episode. If you enjoy what you're hearing, you can continue listening into part two, which will be starting right after this. You've been listening to the Experience Saki podcast.